Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio spoke with a professional squash player turned author, learned about land stewardship and remediation, and heard new music from a Bridgeport honky-tonk band. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 19, 2018. Nancy Clem chatted with Michael Swears, a land steward here in Chicago. The founder of the project People Are a Part of Nature, Swears discussed how ecological stewardship can help redefine how humans interact with the natural world. Spontaneous Vegetation airs the second Monday of the month at noon. Hey, Michael. Hey. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I want to kind of get into it right away because we only have an hour and um, start with um, how the current state of practices of ecological restoration reflect how we see ourselves Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in this world or nature within ourselves and we within it. And maybe you could kind of get at that by talking about um, defining ecological restoration by the sense of practices that are currently being engaged by it. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, ecological restoration is the practice of bringing back biodiversity or health to an ecosystem or to you know various kinds of habitats that exist mm-hmm. locally and all throughout the world this practice is going on in different ways you know it's different in China than it is in America than it is in Europe and in Europe they use the term rewilding for it instead of restoration you know like so there's different takes on it but generally i think underpinning this is a kind of there's some narratives that you know underlie this practice and one of which is this sort of sense of reckoning for the uh, destruction that, you know, human beings have, you know, wrought upon the landscape over the past, especially since the beginning of modernity. But, you know, like, um, it's a sense of rectifying that and, you know, bringing back native species to an area. Um, it often involves the removal of non-native species, especially ones that are called invasive, that are extremely aggressive in a landscape that um, we perceive to be harmful to the native uh, combination of plants that would grow. Um, and these practices involve a lot of clearing away, you know, invasive brush or plants. Mechanically. Mechanically and with the use of often of herbicides and different kinds of tools. Um, and the collecting of native seed and planting that, sowing that into areas. And then the, uh, the replication of various ecological processes like um, prescribed fires would mimic uh, a natural, you know, lightning strike. Or I would add to that, uh, you know, like an American Indian um, started burn, you know, for hunting buffalo or for just managing the landscape. Mm -hmm. So we're mimicking these things. If you were working in a floodplain, there might be things you would do to, um, you know, correct the course of streams or, you know, rivers that have been over-channelized, and you might try to re-meander them. Um, You might try to um, girdle trees along the riverbank to mimic like a ice scour or different flood, you know, flood processes that happen. Mm-hmm. So generally it's, you know, taking the hand of man and sort of recreating natural processes and trying to create a landscape in a natural environment that mimics some sort of a target time. Generally in America, we generally do like a pre-European would be like the target, I suppose. Like what was the prairie like before the settlers came and destroyed it or before farming came and destroyed it or before it was overgrazed. So there's a lot of room for questioning in there, you know, and 
different takes, but generally that's the over overall view. Well, it seems, you know, in trying to understand what our landscapes looked like pre-European settlement um, is is a hard thing to even know. Mm-hmm. Landscapes being not just the fact that they were savannas and prairies and woodlands, but particular species um, of plants, but we're also talking about a lot of unknowns, like condition of soil, um, mm-hmm. uh, fungi communities, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it, there seems to be... You know, you you're, have talked about a more participatory ecology, mm-hmm. um, and you're kind of breaking away or bumping these ideas of ecological restoration around what I kind of feel like are um, could be heroic or nostalgic mm-hmm. as we search for this broken past. Yeah. Um, so... I'm wondering um, if you could talk more about how you feel um, the current perception of ourselves within landscape, within Mm -hmm. nature, um, as part of nature, is different in what you're proposing Mm -hmm. in participatory ecology compared to how ecological restoration is now geared there seems to be a you're 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 making an emphasis, and it seems like it will bump practices a little bit. So, mm-hmm. of how we not only look at, um, but learn from the landscapes we have right now. Indeed, yeah. Um, well, first, I would want to say that um, if you've ever been to uh, a remnant prairie, um, I can think of a number of them around Chicago. Uh, a good example would be Shoe Factory Road Prairie, which is west of the city. Um, kind of out by like the I-55 interchange. And um, and you go there, and it's a place on top of a hill. This is a hill prairie um, with a very shallow soil because, you know, over thousands of years the soil has flown off the, uh, the hillside. And you stand there in early spring or, you know, early summer or late summer. Um, it's an overwhelming experience. To me, this is like one of the few places where I feel the sense of being in a living temple. Um, and these plants have all evolved for thousands of years together. And it's a very special thing, and it's worth protecting, right? Um, on the other hand, you you look at the word restoration, and you look at, you know, like the sense of um, what, we're, what we're doing and the sort of implied guilt behind it as a species— and there's something that, I mean, people have likened to it as likened it to a sort of like savior complex almost. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really um, compelling critique. And I mean, it gets back to this idea of like, are we using the very same tools that and methods that are have, you know, wrought this destruction and brought us to this point of, you know, ecological crisis or whatever you want to call it, are we just sort of like mimicking that again and overlaying it back upon ourselves, upon nature and, you know, to make this fix and what does that really do? Um, And then if you look at sort of the models, the targets that we seek in a a natural area, like what is nature, right? Um, And there's many ways, places and ways to look at our engagement. I mean, something as simple as the Grand Canyon is a good example, you know, like People go and take pictures of it. It's a natural, majestic, pristine wilderness is what we perceive it as, right? Um, 
But you can also look at a local, you know, like forest preserve or a prairie restoration or any sort of natural area around here um, with rare plants or not. And we see it as a sort of, we see it as nature as a sort of outside of human being place, you know, Mm -hmm. where we kind of, it becomes like an object almost. It's like, and I'm interested in the ways we're relating with these landscapes and what are we doing there actually, you know, like, and people do all sorts of things in, you know, natural areas. Like we go birding, um, some people hunt and fish, but um, we go and and we botanize and look at wildflowers. Um, We try to heal it, but the ultimate target is like a sense of a wilderness that does not include human beings. And to me, this is a little bit disingenuous for a few reasons, but ultimately because all of these landscapes around us uh, and pretty much all over the world are ecosystems that have evolved with human beings mm-hmm. as a species that is part of that natural community and that is drawing sustenance from it and is harvesting firewood and is um, manipulating the landscape for human beings' own, our own preferences, right? The way we like things to be even. Mm-hmm. Um, planting, you know, groundnut tubers along the river so that we can harvest them later, but are, those are also part of a natural community that's there. That we it, That's beyond us, you know, like groundnut tubers will grow along the river with other things and climb up, you know, the Jerusalem artichoke wild plants because they need a stock. Like that's not even things that we can control. Like, so we're trying to do the same way that a beaver or, you know, like a raccoon is manipulating its landscape um, and serving as a sort of ecosystem engineer, as they call them. Mm-hmm. But so I'm very much interested in bringing people back into relationship with the ecosystem and um, placing us as just one part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you, in 2017, you founded People Are a Part of Nature, which you describe as a multi-aspectual project <laughs> synthesizing ecological stewardship with human subsistence to recast the social and cultural stories that define how human beings allow themselves to interact with their natural world. Mm-hmm. So what are some ways that you actually... Indeed. And engage people in landscape to help them realize that they are part of nature beyond just tourists of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is a tricky thing, you know, like, I mean, there is a truth to the fact that human exploitation of landscapes has caused harm upon it. But at the same time, we do need to depend upon these areas. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a few activities that we're working on, um, one of which is this concept of what I've kind of dubbed uh, biodiversity foraging, or the sense that um, there are certain species in an ecosystem that are more of like a successional species. So like sassafras tree is a good example of this. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at the understory of a sandy woods, you know, with black oaks, like you'll often find a lot of sassafras all over the place. And one natural ecological process that kind of controls that is the fires come through and they burn, you know, the sassafras down to a crisp and you have all these dead tree stalks coming up and then little shoots in the spring. Um, and sassafras grows mm-hmm. by the roots underground, you know, and um, as you, people may or may not know, sassafras tea is a traditional, you know, beverage that's consumed in the springtime as a cleanser and it's delicious. You know, it's where our taste for root beer comes from. That's where the flavor comes from. If you've ever had a real sassafras root beer, you know, you, you're like, wow, this is what root beer really, 
I didn't even know this is what it was supposed to we be. Had, but we it actually had to make that in Girl Scouts back in the back in the seventies. Yeah, <laughs> real sassafras root, root beer. Right, but so like. <laughs> As a person in, in a landscape where you have this successional plant that is abundant and it grows by the root, um, you know, you can go out and you can harvest the roots of sassafras at the right time of year and you mm-hmm. know, follow the protocols. And you're actually, in some senses, helping the biodiversity of that place. Mm-hmm. And that's true for a lot of species. And if you look at a lot of the plants that human beings traditionally eat, including, you know, our garden vegetables like carrots, you know, or like parsnips or uh, what's, I don't know, tomatoes even, you know, like right. these are all weedy plants that are... Um, that's exactly what we're doing. We've sort of brought them into our gardens, um, but vice versa, we can go out into you know a natural ecosystem and engage in that way. And we're actually, in some ways, doing it, performing an ecosystem service, if you want to call it that, to the ecosystem as human beings. I-94 was in conversation with author Ivy Pakoda. Ivy spoke about her cinematic style of writing, how she uses the city of Los Angeles as a character, and her unlikely career as a professional squash player. This segment begins with an excerpt from her book, Wonder Valley. I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Ren stood across from Layla's place. He took his sweatshirt out of his backpack, put it on, and pulled up the hood just in case she glanced his way, just in case she happened to recognize him even though she wasn't expecting to see him. He watched his mother, or rather, the woman who seemed to have replaced his mother, reach into one of the shopping carts behind the man in the camp chair and pull out a tent. It was yellow, streaked and stained with dirt. She popped it up, arranging the poles and pins in a flash. His mother, who used to have nails so long she made him do the dishes. His mother, who spent more money than they could afford on having her hair foiled and colored. His mother, who thought a barbecue in the park outside their housing project was nasty. He watched her unroll her sleeping bag, set up her bed. Then she came out. She was wearing a pink velour sweatsuit with a rhinestone heart on the back that was missing most of the jewels. Her hair was cut above her ears, a natural frizz streaked with gray. Rin had never seen her without her purple or gold coils. He barely remembered seeing her without makeup. When he was a little kid, he'd known enough to see that although she'd been a mess, lit on booze half the day, weed at night, she had still been fine. Whenever she'd come up to visit him in juvie, all the other boys would turn their heads, catcall his mom, dare him to step to them for their cheek. Layla crouched down in front of the man with the radio. He offered her the weed. Ren watched her roll a joint, her movements quick and expert. She sparked it, sucking in her cheeks, amplifying how gaunt she'd gotten. She held in the smoke, then exhaled. She coughed violently, doubling over, her hands on her knees. He curled his toes around his bankroll. There were cheaper hotels than the Cecil, places outside the city where he could take Layla by them a few weeks until he figured out the next step. Four times, Ren stepped off the curb. Once he made it halfway across the street, but each time he tripped up and staggered back to his spot. His mom thought of him as that little banger wannabe, the kid who got caught up in stuff way out of his league. 
She'd never listen when he tried to explain that he'd just been fooling, that he didn't know what he was doing, that the older kids played him. She didn't believe him that he'd never been a bad kid at all. But what should it matter now that she was living on the street? What should she care who and what he'd been, only that he was there to help? Still, he couldn't bring himself to cross Crocker, reintroduce himself. One of the women in the camp was cooking over a small stove, heating up hot dogs that she served to the group. Someone else passed around leftovers in a greasy box. Afternoon slipped into evening and evening into night. The street settled in, people tucked into their bags and tents and crawled under their tarps. Ren watched Layla zip her flap shut. Tomorrow, he told himself. Tomorrow, he'd come down first thing. He'd pack her tent. They'd get on a bus, either back east or out of town, or they'd find somewhere else to camp, outdoors but clean. But first, he'd take one more night at the Cecil, one more locked door, one more shower. And we're back. You are listening to I-94. This is Lumpen Radio. That was a selection from Ivy Pakoda's Wonder Valley, and we're talking uh, with Ivy about this. We also first want to thank, as we do every week, want to thank International Anthem Recording Company. They provided Tamika Reed, that is the backing music, uh, and of course our reader, Shanna Van Volt, who reads everything we throw at her. Especially all the stuff with crazy names and stuff. Ivy, I wanted to talk to you about that. The, the Skid Row scenes. This is uh, for you know people out there who uh, maybe are a little lost. This is another character coming into the book who has just gotten out of juvenile detention. He is looking for his mother, who he hasn't seen, uh, I believe, in two years in the book. Mother has stopped visiting him. He finally finds his mother on Skid Row. Um, the Hotel Cecil, for people also that don't know, is a rather notorious place in, in Los Angeles history. Uh, I believe it is the number one murder hotel uh, in the United States. There's been a, a number of suspicious deaths there. People think it is haunted. Uh, so I was personally, I'd be very pleased to see it in there because I happen to be uh, something of a Hotel Cecil grim story buff. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it, is, it is exactly what you, what you think it is. Um, I want to, though, just go back to this because this is a, an interesting character that uh, comes into the book in an arc that is only tangentially connected to the others at first, it seems. He seems to be somebody that's dropped in outside of the commune, and you, you realize that he is going to actually have a much more central role uh, than you think as, as the book progresses. It really isn't clear until, I would say, almost what, five-sixths of the way through? Two, that, I was going to say two-thirds, yeah, but I, I one think of those fractions. Yeah. Um, and what I wanted to ask you about, Ivy, specifically, because this is a, a technique that uh, has been used very successfully in film. I was thinking of Richard Linkletter's Slackers when I was reading this book, just these kind of multiple interlocking Shortcuts. Shortcuts, coming, all, all kind of coming together. Were you kind of inspired by, by film or TV when you were doing this? It's, it's not obviously a new technique. It's existed in novels, but it, it felt very cinematic, and, and I just wondered if that was something you were going toward here. Um, that is very kind of you to say. Um, I, um, no, actually, I wasn't. No, I, um, I love multi-perspective novels, um, and I, uh, I just, I don't know, I really wanted the challenge, although um, I thought I was not going to need it, of writing something that um, you had to piece together. I really love Kate Atkinson's book. Oh, um, of course. Yeah, uh, which one am I thinking of? Um, when will there be when when will there be good news? Right, that's a great um, it's book. It's really tightly plotted and yeah. it's very intricate. And I was reading that when I first started to write this book, um, and that was sort of my inspiration um, for trying to weave all these stories together. Um, I never know what I'm doing when I start writing, 
So um, often things that seem random are random, and then you know you have to figure out how you're going to make it work. So, you know, I do. I, I'm sure that especially like current, you know, prestige TV does influence me. You know, mm-hmm. I do watch a lot of um, you know, of the shows that are pretty complicated. You know, from I don't know, Sopranos, Game of Thrones, stuff where there's multiple plot lines, and it, it's always interesting for me to like figure out whether those are going to dovetail or whether you know we'll just follow these characters. Separately, um, I can't imagine that that isn't an influence, but I don't think it's a direct one. Um, so really, it was Kate Atkinson's book, and then you know, um, also uh, Dennis Johnson's Tree of Smoke. Uh, oh yeah, oh, that's my favorite book. It's, it's a great sort book. Of hard to figure out how that all is coming together, um, and some people might argue it doesn't exactly. Um, so like, those are the kind of novels I like to read. We are huge fans of Dennis Johnson on the show. Um, rest I also, in peace. I also want yeah, rest in peace. Um, so the book starts out with a naked guy running. Is it the 101? The 101. Yeah, yeah the 101. The I'm sorry, the 110. Uh, the oh. 101 goes through the it's other the side. the 101. He's running underneath the 101. He right. runs, uh, it's not clear. It's never said it's the 110. Um, well, not entirely. So, But he runs. You see the 101 go up over his head at one point. Gotcha. So we got this naked guy. And the book actually starts with nudity and ends with nudity. And it, that brings me to the character of Tony. Um, huh. And uh, I, I could relate to Tony, um, not his financial status or his job or his lifestyle or anything, but that kind of. And I, I wanted to bring this up earlier when we were talking about the other characters, but I think everyone in this novel, and what, what I. And when we were talking about the Cole and Ren looking for. Everybody's searching for meaning in their lives. Um, and Ivy, you said you know that they've they've also all, you know, had some kind of trauma in their lives, and right. you know who hasn't. Um, and it, it reminds me of you know like it's not a suburban novel, but that kind of suburban malaise you'd see like in Cheever mm-hmm. or um, A.M. Holmes. You know that just and that's what I got out of the character of Tony. He does live in. He's not a suburban guy. He's an urban guy. But you know this guy. It's pretty suburban. I mean, he lives in sort of. A, I mean, it's it's in Los Angeles, but there's so many. What I growing up in New York would consider suburban. Like okay. Right. Bungalow on place in the city. I mean, it's in the city, but he does have a kind of, you know, lifestyle. Cushy. That's not exactly. Okay. Urban. Like Northwest Side here, kind of. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. And by by the way, just for people that are having trouble following along with this in, in los angeles the freeways are they don't go by names they go by numbers and the 110 cuts uh north to south it goes right through downtown in chinatown the 101 actually kind of curves off to the west it goes up to north hollywood van nuys and into the valley uh porn valley specifically um just so if you guys are are not familiar with los angeles topography so you can get it in your mind this is in the center of the city it's not the coastal highway the coastals are the 10 and the 405 that's out toward venice and santa monica so that's your public service message about Los Angeles freeways. <laughs> and uh, the book begins um, and ends with Tony, too. And I loved your um, portrayal of his wife. We, um, Stephanie. We, yeah, Stephanie. She, she, was, she was a rough one. Um, but, you know, there's, at, the, at the conclusion of the book, there's a, there's a moment where, um, you know, Tony gets naked and jumps in the ocean and basically curls up into a ball and, and you know, that was his moment right there. That's that that's that was his meaning for the day after going through this rather uh, complicated. Uh, that's one way to put it. Complicated uh, journey. Journey, basically escaping from the monotony of his life, and I I, I actually loved how it ended. And I and you know I don't want to go into it, be a total spoiler guy here, but 
just the way that um, the way that Tony was written, it's kind of that like uh, that just searching every man he, on paper. It looks like he's got everything, but and and you get in there a little deeper, and he, he has no idea what he wants or what you know what life's about. And and for me, that character really resonated with me. Well, I think we can say this right. that, that in the beginning of the book, Tony. Um, he gets out of his car. He's he's one of the cars in the jam. Oh, that's right. On the 110. Yeah, yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's a guy running by totally naked. Right. Everybody's running at him. Tony's wife's calling him. He's got a million things running through his head She's that he like, has to do. She's like, lock the doors, lock yeah. the doors. Yeah, <laughs> and, and Tony's just like, I got to. I gotta chase this guy. Well, he's he's an interesting character, and I don't know if you agree with me. He is a character that takes action and attempt to change his life. Some other of the characters are passive in this book; yeah. they let things happen to him. He is actually trying to do something to affect change. He just doesn't know how to do it, right? In a weird well, way. Well, the difference with him is that his story only unfolds over the course of twenty-four hours, and the rest of their stories unfold mm. over a much longer mm-hmm. period of right. time. So, like. Four well, years, right? Is it in that particular instance, yeah. you know, and it happens to work out. He happens to get sort of involved with this, you know, whatever everything else that's going on. Um, but like, I'm not exactly sure that if you zoom, like, he manages to meet a lot of the characters who are, you know, involved in the story. But like, I'm not sure that given a longer stretch of time, we see Tony like jumping to action because he hasn't really done a whole bunch to sort of correct all the things that went wrong for him. But yes, he, in the moment that we're paying attention to him, he is doing some stuff. The Trump Diaries. Trump ignites a firestorm and refers to Haiti, El Salvador, and several African nations as assholes. Ice raids 7-Eleven. Trump finally pays a subcontractor. She turns out to be a former porn star. Trump says he will take a look at libel laws, and he cancels a British trip in the face of huge protests. And then Stephen Bannon is subpoenaed. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 357, January 11th. Trump claimed today his administration would, quote, take a look at libel laws as he seethed over the publication of a book that paints him as a dangerous, out-of-touch moron. We're going to take a strong look at our country's libel laws so that when somebody says something that is false and defamatory about someone, that person will have meaningful recourse in our courts. Our current libel laws are a sham and a disgrace and do not represent American values or American fairness. In reality, Trump can do nothing about the laws, which have been set by Congress and the courts. And according to a Washington Post study, Trump has told 2,509 lies or falsehoods during the first year of his presidency alone. Immigration agents raided dozens of 7-Eleven convenience stores across the nation in what the Trump administration described as its largest enforcement action against employers so far. That sweep of 98 stores in 17 states, from California to Florida, resulted in 21 arrests. ICE said in a statement that employers would be held responsible. 7-Eleven said in a statement it was not responsible for the behavior of its franchisees, but added it would terminate the franchises if they were found guilty of harboring illegal aliens. And the Trump administration will now allow states to require people to work for Medicaid. The elderly, disabled, pregnant women, and children are excluded. However, it is the first time in the 50-year history of the program that Medicaid recipients might be required to hold down a job in order to receive benefits. Kentucky will enact those new requirements immediately. And Congress voted to extend the National Security Agency's warrantless surveillance program for six years. That renewal came over the objection of a bipartisan group to impose significant new privacy limits and an early morning tweet from Trump that seemed to support those new limits. The vote, 256 to 164, centered on an expiring law that allows the government, without a warrant, to collect communications of foreigners abroad. Day 358, January 12th. The Washington Post is reporting that Trump lashed out at his advisors when they 
floated restoring protections for immigrants from Haiti, El Salvador, and African countries as part of a bipartisan immigration deal. Trump reportedly said, quote, why are we having all these people from asshole countries come here? He then suggested that the United States instead should bring in more people from countries like Norway. The exchange apparently stunned his advisors and has set off a major firestorm. Trump apparently said those words believing they would play to his base. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting a lawyer representing Trump arranged a $130,000 payment to a former adult film star one month before the 2016 presidential election. The money was allegedly paid to Stormy Daniels to keep quiet about a sexual encounter. Trump has attacked the journal on an unrelated matter, claiming he was misquoted this week. And Trump stopped short of imposing sanctions on Iran tonight, but gave European allies only 120 days to agree to an overhaul of that deal. If the allies, which strongly support the deal and outside observers say is working, fail to change it, the USA will pull out. Trump did impose sanctions on the head of Iran's judiciary, Sadiq Larjani. The White House holds him responsible for the violent crackdown on recent anti-government protests. Day 359, January 13th. Trump is claiming he canceled his trip to Britain next month because he is unhappy with the new U.S. Embassy in London, bizarrely accusing the Obama administration of making a bad deal for an off-location. In fact, the embassy's location was set by security concerns, and insiders say the trip was canceled as Trump almost certainly would have been greeted by mass protests, as he is despised in the United Kingdom. And the Morning Consult reports that Trump's support has fallen dramatically across all groups, including those who supported his last campaign. Trump's support has dropped an average of seven points since last January, making him the most unpopular president since Richard Nixon. Day 360, January 14th. A government shutdown appears imminent, and a bipartisan deal on immigration appears dead after politicians spent the weekend sniping at one another. The deal collapsed after Trump repeatedly used racist and vulgar terms in a meeting with a small group of senators. Trump tried to blame Democrats for that impasse on Sunday, tweeting, quote, DACA is probably dead because the Democrats don't really want it. They just want to talk and take desperately needed money away from our military. According to observers, the military funding was not discussed during that meeting. Day 361, January 15th. Trump claimed Monday, quote, I am not a racist, as two Republican senators appear to have lied about what was said at a White House meeting. Immigration hardliners Tom Cotton and David Perdue claim the comments that so incensed the nation were not said. The Washington Post reports that Cotton and Perdue's account is actually fundamentally dishonest. Illinois Senator Dick Durbin stands behind his comments, leading Trump to tweet, quote, Senator Dickie Durbin totally misrepresented what was said at the DACA meeting. Deals can't get made when there is no trust. Durbin blew DACA and is hurting our military. The comments came on Martin Luther King Day, and it was not lost that he observed that day by playing golf in Florida. Trump had called on Americans in an official proclamation to honor Dr. King's legacy with acts of civic work and community service. It is Trump's 94th day at a golf course this year. Trump personal spokeswoman and aide Hope Hicks will meet with the House Intelligence Committee this week. She will be the closest confidant of Trump's to be interviewed yet by the committee. And Senate Democrats have 50 votes in favor of restoring net neutrality. Only one more Republican vote is needed in order to override the FCC's decision to deregulate the broadband industry. The measure still would face stiff opposition in the House and is likely to be vetoed by Donald Trump. Day 362, January 16th. Stephen Bannon was subpoenaed today by Robert Mueller to testify before grand jury as part of the investigation in the links between Trump's associates and Russia. It is the first time Mueller is known to have used a grand jury subpoena to obtain information from Trump's inner circle. It is unclear why Mueller served Bannon. However, today, Bannon also refused to answer questions from the House Intelligence Committee, prompting them to subpoena him on the spot. It is unclear if Bannon invoked executive privilege. 
And the Daily Beast reports another porn actress, Jessica Drake, who had accused Trump of offering her $10,000 for sex, signed a non-disclosure agreement barring her from talking about the president. Drake has sued Trump, claiming harassment. Also, Bannon was quoted in a book as saying Trump's lawyers, quote, took care of what, 100 women in the run-up to the 2016 election. And justice took the extremely unusual step of asking the Supreme Court to immediately review a federal judge's ruling that stopped Trump from killing the DACA program. That decision, issued by Judge William Alsop of the Federal District Court in San Francisco, imposed a nationwide stop on the decision to end the program until litigation can be heard. Jeff Sessions said in a statement, it, quote, defies both law and common sense for the beliefs of a single district court to somehow be mandated nationwide. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, was warned about his relationship with Rupert Murdoch's ex-wife, Wendy Deng. Kushner, who is a senior advisor to the U.S. president, was told to exercise caution around Deng, who was a close friend of Kushner's wife, Ivanka Trump. Deng was lobbying for a high-profile construction project in Washington funded by the Chinese government. Concerns reportedly revolved around a spire in the project, which U.S. security feared would be used for surveillance. The article was unusual since the Wall Street Journal is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Six in 10 Republicans, that's 61%, say they're satisfied with the way things are going in the U.S., the party's highest level of satisfaction since February 2007. However, pollers in the new Morning Consult review of Trump's first term also overwhelmingly gave Trump a D or an F grade. Only 32% of those voters, overwhelmingly skewing white, male, and Republican, gave Trump either an A or a B. These are the Trump Diaries. The Klonsky brothers talked with Delia Ramirez, a candidate for state representative from Humboldt Park. Ramirez discussed what it means to be a progressive Democrat, the systemic racism that still infects Chicago's political community, and why true change can only happen from the grassroots up. Hitting Left with the Klonskys airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, Delia Ramirez is running uh, for, for those the, who just tuned in. <laughs> is running for state rep. In what district? In the 4th House District as a progressive Democrat. I had to emphasize that as much as I possibly could. And and so, what what is a progressive progressive These days, because here's Mm -hmm. here's why. Uh, uh, I've had a chance to talk to uh, most of the uh, Democrats that are running for governor. I haven't talked to JB, but, uh, but most of the others. And they all call themselves progressive Democrats. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find a Democrat in in Illinois these days that doesn't call themselves a progressive Democrat. Especially around election time. And so, so, uh, so, what is a in? For me, you're running as a progressive Democrat. What is what? What does that mean? Yeah, I've I've had a lot of conversation with a number of people about it because I think that we may have to just come up with another word. (laughs) It's been used and abused so much. I would say a progressive Democrat is someone um, who's not afraid of being uncomfortable and causing tension for equity. And I think that a progressive Democrat is someone that is clearly, clearly understands the injustices and the system that we live in that actually is not really broken. It's working. It's just working for a number of people not even a number, a few, at the expense of everyone else. Um, I would say that a progressive Democrat for me is someone that is constantly doing everything in their power to ensure that there is equity at all levels for all people, not just some. And in doing that, sometimes they know that they have to step back so that others could also lead. That's progressive to me. 
And and what's the um, how does that manifest itself in say because you're you're moving from being a community organizer, someone who's worked at street level, mm-hmm. to now wanting to move to the legislative arena. So how does the how does that description of progressivism manifest itself mm-hmm. in the kind of policies that should this is what I was asking mm-hmm. earlier and you wanted to this is a good time to come back to it is to how does that manifest itself mm-hmm. in 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 legislative affair you're going to be going down to, to that snake pit uh, in Springfield uh, <laughs> that s hole yeah <laughs> not nothing against the town very nice people and uh, who, who hard working poor folks mainly who live in mm-hmm. Springfield it's a boring town Fred. but uh, <laughs> it's uh, can I tell you that it's the uh, it's the um, birthplace of the um, uh, corn dog. I feel bad for Delia because you're going to be spending a lot of time down there. I hope you find uh, some good housing uh, and and some good places to eat, you know. And and it certainly will be far more affordable. But anyway, so how does does that? But we digress. How does that definite? How does that definition of of um, of uh, progressivism? Mm -hmm. How does that manifest itself? for example, legislatively, or mm-hmm. or within, or or with within the democrat within a dem- within mm-hmm. the Democratic Party. Why does a can, nice person like you want to go down into that? Snake well, that's the other you? question. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, what do you hope to do? Yeah, what we're missing is rooted people. Uh, we have people that we continue to elect, who are the same old people, different face. People that sometimes move into the district, the ward, the area because they think that they are the best thing possible because someone, oftentimes another elected official, told them or gave them money to run. We have people that move in, and from the moment they decided to run in their entire career, they are beholden to everyone else but the community. So I think what we're missing is people that are truly rooted, that that have roots in their neighborhood with their neighbors, that have been doing the work. We don't have, mostly, we don't have organizers legislating. You need people that know how to build relationships and understand that everything happens in the context of relationships. You need people that know how to build coalitions. For starters, there is no progressive caucus in this center of our capital. There isn't that. And what you have is people just fighting each other, and eventually as you're trying to build... You mean like we have in the city council? Is that what you mean? (laughs) No, I mean real progressive (laughs) caucus. I mean an actual progressive caucus. You don't have that. You have people that work here. There's one caucus here, one caucus there, and they're fighting within themselves. And there is no real intentionality of working together. And it is making sure that a runner and a Trump are always at the center, be Republican or not. And I and I, so I why am I running? I'm running because I've been organizing my entire life, and I used to run a social service agency. And at the age of thirty, after nine years of running the organization, I look back. And I felt like I was part of a system. I was a system worker, not a system changer. Oftentimes when you're running these nonprofits and half of your funding or 80% of it comes from government contracts, they are told, do as much as you can with very little. Don't change the system. Just manage the system. And you become a system worker. And I'm not okay with that. Not when I continue to see that our communities are having school shut down. Our neighborhoods are losing neighbors that have been there all their lives. And safety is still not something that we can talk about, yet alone experience. So, you know, I'm a nice person, but I'm also not afraid of calling it like it is. So, how does this how does this notion of a of a of a progressive caucus in the in the legislature 
What would be the relationship of that caucus, for example, to the speaker, to Michael Madigan? That's a really good question. I think that it would, um, first of all, it's building the Progressive Caucus and trying to elect more rooted people to be there with me when we win and when we begin legislating in January of 2019. It all starts then. And I think the second part of it is to get to the court is what is it that we're trying to build? So if we're talking about worker rights, if we're, trying to, if we're talking about housing stability and the issues that we talk about both on both sides, on the Republican side and on the Democratic side, um, when and how do we work with the speaker to make sure that these bills that might be a little controversial end up moving forward and that he know and that we know that collectively we're going to have, if we want to get things done, we're going to have to come together in roll call. And when we can come together on roll call, Progressive Caucus does what it does to be able to stand with what we believe in and that we're supported by each other to do that and we're not one person trying to stand against all of them. Well, here, 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 I'm going to throw some things at you that I think a progressive uh, rep would have to take a, a strong stand on. Uh, one would be uh, an elected school board. Absolutely. Uh, uh, rather than a mayoral control of, of the schools here. In so Chicago. you agree that? I fully support. I have door knocked and I've collected signatures for elected school board. So has my entire family. Okay. Absolutely. A, another one, which uh, all the people that we've interviewed on this show, all the politicians or, or wannabe politicians that we've interviewed on this show have come out for, but never se- nothing ever seems to happen, mm-hmm. is kind of a uh, economic restructuring of the tax uh, code. Mm-hmm. In other words, how do we get a progressive income tax. income tax here in the state of Illinois? Is that something that uh, you think can be done or that uh, you can push for? I know it can be done, and it needs to be done. I mean, we keep talking about the state is in such debt. Yeah, it is. And we need a progressive income tax to to solve that. And we need a constitutional amendment to make that happen. As a deputy director at Community Renewal Society, for two years, we worked hard. Under my leadership, we sent our policy staff and we organized congregations to push for a constitutional amendment. And it did not pass, but it does not mean we give up. We, We need it. I think in the interim, as we work for a progressive income tax, we have to also look at other ways of generating revenue that may be easier to do without a constitutional amendment, right? And one of those would be legalizing marijuana. I I believe that we have to legalize it. I think we need to regulate it. We need to tax it. Well, one of the... um, Brother Fred over here is always bringing this up. Uh, There's been a a Democratic uh, majority... And a governor. Even a supermajority and a governor for years in this state. And some of the very same people now that are talking, the talk that you're talking, have been in the state legislature all this time, and yet... Uh, haven't done anything. No, haven't done anything. How, what, what's the change, you know? Yeah. Well, first starters, I'll tell you, and I think uh, okay. one of my opponents has said, well, she didn't even want to do it to begin with. Even when we say the word politician, don't you feel some kind of way? It feels yucky feels sometimes. Yucky. It feels yeah. yucky. It took me two months and 105 conversations with people in the community to finally say yes. It took me a conversation with at least two of the people that are still running and then finding out that the third person was running to say, I have to run. We keep waiting for other leaders to come. And the truth is that my mom and my dad are still barely making it. What makes it different for me is that I don't talk about issues that I heard someone tell me about or that I just heard at a door. 
My father is retired, retired last March, almost a year ago, and is barely able to pay his property taxes. He is trying to find a second job because he did not have a 401k. He was not part of a union. My mother is a home care worker that in this state makes $11 an hour and half of her paycheck goes to her health care insurance. But without that, she has no diabetes medication. So what makes it different for me is that if I don't fight for those issues, if I don't champion what is not popular, my mother and my father may not have a home. That so it's makes personal it with you, huh? It's very personal. But personal and community have always gone hand in hand with me yeah. since I was a little girl. Who, who's, who's backing you? Who's endorsing your, your campaign? It was a draft campaign started by a number of people in the community. Um, and I would say leaders in the labor movement, um, leaders in my local church and the nonprofit, um, all over the place. As that happened, we continued to grow the number of people that came and door knocked with me. We had about 216 people either door knock with me, collect signatures, or host house parties for me. As that happened, Mike and Fred, a number of elected officials started realizing, oh my goodness, there is a coalition being formed in the Humboldt Park, Westtown community that I need to be part of. I cannot sit on the sidelines and not support this independent leader because what they're building goes past March 21st. As a result of that, we have Congressman Gutierrez, who has endorsed our campaign. Alderman Maldonado, who you all remember, and you may know, I helped run a campaign against them in 2015, is also supporting, as well as Juanita Irizarry, who is who ran against them. And a good friend I'm, of this program, by the way. A good friend of this program <laughs> and a friend, a very close friend of mine. Uh, we also have Senator Del Valle, who fought. To, law, to create a lawsuit and filed a lawsuit and won to create the first Latino district in the northwest side of the city in the 80s. Um, so they are all with us. Um, they are all supporting us. And Chuy Garcia just weeks ago also came up and stood with me and said, you know, Delia, you are not just the future of the progressive movement. You are also its present. So they're standing with me along with the Chicago Teachers Union, SEIU State Council, um, and the AFL-CIO. Now, besides your own your own campaign, uh, do you have any uh, do you have a position, for example, on uh, on other campaigns? For example, um, uh, the, uh, the Joe Barrios's campaign uh, for tax uh, to be reelected for his, uh, Yeah, what's your take on on Barrios, the boss Barrios? We call him over here. I would say to you, I have I have a take on it. You're gonna go there? No, I don't want to go there because I'm a candidate that's running and trying to focus on my own okay. race. I will tell you that we need innovative new leadership. Welcomed Aaron Edminster and Three Tons into the studio. 
Aaron and Killian discuss their love of honky-tonk music, where their inspiration comes from, and why they prize storytelling in their lyrics. The boys also perform a track off their new self-titled album, Live in Studio B. Radio Free with John Daly and Jamie Trecker airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4 p.m. This is John Daly and Jamie Trecker back with Radio Free Bridgeport, and we are joined by Aaron Edminster and Three Tons. Aaron and Killian are in the studio. They've got some uh, gear ready to go, so we're excited for uh, some new new music uh, in the studio. Yeah, Take welcome, guys. Oh, thanks for having us. Here, yeah, Thank awesome. you. Good afternoon. Killian. You guys are uh, Bridgeport natives, uh, or live down here. Yeah, we've been here for a while, yeah, been yeah. in the neighborhood. Yeah. What brought you down here in the first place, guys? Oh, gosh, well... Uh, I'm from Ohio. He's from Texas, and uh, we met here. And we, I don't know, you you moved right down to the Pilsen area. I, I live in Heart of Chicago. Heart of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Oh, very nice. Just across the freeway. Sure, sure. And then uh, I played with him for long enough, and a bunch of other folks I play music with were down here. So it kind of seemed like it made sense to move down to the South Side, be closer to the people I played with. And uh, I love I love Bridgeport. I'm digging it. <laughs> yeah, what and you guys talk about some of the other bands before we get into to what you guys are doing with uh, with uh, three tons here. But because you you guys were mentioning you were in a bunch of other local acts around here, uh, a number. Uh, yeah, we, we we had an act together called Church Bus for a long time. Played around Bridgeport. We did a couple of the, uh, the cardboard shows, the early cardboard shows. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of one of the Pocious brothers played with us. Yeah, uh, that's a band the, we can't. The younger. Uh, that's a band we can't name on the air. The well, C notes. The yeah, C notes. The C notes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was uh, uh, Al Scum, the uh, mm-hmm. drummer, drummer extraordinaire. We had a lot of fun with that band. Um, yeah, we took a little break for a while, and then we decided to be playing again. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for a long time, we hosted the open mic at Bernice's on Halstead. Oh. Long time. That's right. Thirty-two, thirty-eight, thirty-two. Halstead. Yeah, South Halstead. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a good gig, man. That was a really good. Uh, we'd played together for years, but uh, doing that gig night in, you know, eh, some nights were better than others, and it really taught you how to, you know, play to a full room, play to an empty room, judge a crowd, cover a mistake. Not that we ever had to do that. No, never. But. Never covered mistakes. No, never had them. I noticed the. Uh the not not addition but the subtraction of the buzzer on the door at Bernice's this year in 2018. <laughs> I think it's still there, but he just doesn't always have it going. Yeah, I think he's decided the neighborhood's turned. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> the neighborhood or the bar <laughs> or the, the bar. The, 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 2018 is the year that Steve Steve the, turned. The proximity of the police, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe so. Yeah, right down the street, cop shop. Steve was in here. What was about uh, four months ago? Yeah, was Steve in here? Yeah. And he was talking about the legacy of the buzzer and and why that went in. Bernice's, uh, you know, Bridgeport's living room, obviously. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we love Stevie B. If you look hard on YouTube, you can find him playing with us, playing yeah. harmonica. Playing yeah. harmonica? We did, a, we did a Christmas tune a couple of years ago, and oh. he played right, harmonica. Right in, the, uh, in front of Bernice's. Oh, yeah. very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Tell us a little bit about how this uh, album came about and uh, what you guys are, are hoping to accomplish, because you got a gig coming up. Uh, fairly soon. It's on the 13th, right? Saturday. Saturday. That's right. Yeah. yeah so we're Reggie's. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, I've been a singer-songwriter in town for a while, and I go through phases where I'm woodshedding and, and hiding out, and then I go through phases where I want to get out and play some shows. we got a real good rhythm section right now, so I guess the rhythm section sounded good, and we kind of decided amongst the two of us it's time to record and try to play some gigs. and. Um, We'd like to try to hook up with some of those summer festivals. You know, they have good food at those things. Mm, that's what we've heard, Rib Fest. Yeah, yeah. Rib Fest. And they all seem to be named after a food. So, 
It's always good to it's choose your gig based on what kind of food you can potentially get. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I we, think that's a wise decision. We've been we've been going down that road. So you know, if, if anybody listening out there, if you've got food, pork bowl, belly bowl, anything, you know. Yeah. Right. If you got a fest? We'll play. Yeah. Yeah. Food. Bridge pork. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bridge <laughs> pork. Bridge pork. We should add get sliced. Yeah. There you go. Oh, there you go. There there you go. You go. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that too. I'm, I mean, I'm hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed the uh, Chavapi, which is a Bridgeport staple with our Croatian uh, community, is pretty pretty prevalent at the summer fests. They're, oh, yeah, they're yeah, all over. That seems to be one of the biggest lines at those uh, at those fest nights. That's right. Well, we just we got to get in there. We got to get in there and do those summer fests. We've been doing bars for a while. I think it's time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't know if they the actually hand you food up to the stage, though. You know, it's, at, you at could, I'm sure you can make it happen if, well, if they just yeah, you, you know could. ask for it. Yeah, maybe you could. I mean, you're usually you, you, you know the guys. Really I've had luck so. asking for a beer. <laughs> there you go. Somebody hand say. me a corn dog. Yeah, I'm gonna not? go for it. I mean, yeah. Can you play the guitar while eating a corn dog? <laughs> I have real minimalist parts. Oh well, okay. designed that way, designed for fests, <laughs> festival design. Well, do you guys want to play a quick track and then we'll get Love back to. into talking? You know, we might as well let the the folks listening know what you guys are about. Yeah. Um, Eddie Mister and, and Three Times. What's the name of this tune? Uh, Toll tax are fine on the new record. Great. Take you down to the North for tonight They call it North but it's so far south of here East, West, Dirt Road, turn back, I don't mind I'd pay the toll for peace of mind I'd pay the toll tax all
I broke her heart and that broke mine I can't find peace of mind The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpen Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. <laughs> <laughs>